Hey, Rockheads, it's time again for NDC, an incredible developer conference held annually in Oslo, Norway. Richard and I will both be there, of course, but check out this all-star lineup. Troy Hunt, Rob Eisenberg, Scott Allen, Oren Eni, Michelle Bustamante, Damian Edwards, Brock Allen, Dominic Beyer, and many more. Register now at ndc-oslo.com. NDC, we'll see you there. .NET Rocks, episode... 1286. Recorded Friday, March 25th, 2016. Hey kids, thanks for geeking out with us. It's Carl and Richard. Hey Richard Campbell. Howdy, howdy, howdy. (laughs) What do you know, buddy? What do I know? I know that, uh, Oh, I do too much traveling by flight. I do too much flying. Airplanes are your friends, man. I love, don't get me wrong, I love tra- I, I love being there. Yeah. Traveling, uh, I eh. just prefer to fall asleep on a flight. Yeah, it's a necessary evil. Yeah. And it's not the airplane, it's the airline. Let's, yeah. Let's be clear. Yeah. <laughs> right. Although, you know, sure beats swimming. Yeah. I suppose. And that's 787, dude. Holy man, is that ever a good plan? Oh, yeah. Well, I guess we ought to just get into it then. Absolutely. What do you got for me? Better know a framework. I love it. Hit that music. All right, dude. What do you got? Surprise me. This being show 1286. Uh, if you go to 1286.pwop.me. That's M-E. Yes. You will see a nice little story. Oh, no, not this one. Do you know this one? <laughs> yes. This just came out April 4th, which is very close to April 1st. So, the, I thought it was a joke You thought it first, was a gag, right? But you, it's you not. You hope it was a gag. The headline is, the TSA, that's the government agency that does security at airports. Isn't that, wasn't they, aren't they toothpaste stealing? Wait. No, yes. That was, that was Mark Miller. <laughs> <laughs> the TSA paid $1.4 million, million for a randomizer app that chooses left or right. Right. And here's the story. When someone starts learning how to code, one of the first things they create is a program that generates and outputs random numbers. In most cases, it's an incredibly simple program to make because your programming language of choice has a randomizing function available to use. Keeping the above in mind, I now turn your attention to the Transport Security Administration and the randomizer app they use every day. If you've traveled through U.S. airports in recent years, then you're well aware of the TSA pre-check lanes. It is a faster way to get through airport security for low-risk travelers and allows you to keep your shoes and belt on. TSA pre-check is faster, but it also includes random searches. And that's where the randomizer app comes in. The app randomly chooses whether travelers go left or right in the pre-check lane. That way, nobody can predict which lane each person is assigned to and therefore can't figure out how to avoid the random checks. And then they show the video of the app in action. There's a TSA employee with rubber gloves holding an iPad out in front of her, pushing the button, and a big arrow goes left or right, and she basically directs people because of the app in which way right. I told her. 
So I have had this experience. How much did the TSA pay to have the randomizer iPad app developed? At least three hundred and thirty-six thousand some odd dollars. Wow, that's three hundred and thirty-six thousand for an app that does nothing more than randomly select left or right a few hundred times an hour. And we know this thanks to developer Kevin Burke, who submitted a Freedom of Information Act request asking for details about the app. And if you think paying over 336000 for an app like this is ridiculous, that's just the tip of the iceberg. The contract for the randomizer app was won by IBM. The total paid for the project is actually $1.4 million, but the cost is not broken down in the documents Burke received in the response to his request. It could be IBM supplied all the iPads and training as well as the app itself. Even so, the cost of the project is crazy. It's an app that just randomly selects left or right. Can you Somebody believe that? Somebody actually declared this as a project. That's the whole thought, right? Right. Like, and, you know, just doing the government paperwork to make it a project, write the code, right? In the time it took them to fill out the forms right. to file that as a project, they could have written the app. Yeah. Oh, my, <sighs> my. So, what you know, you it's not supersonic flights, but it does have to do with air travel. Yes. <laughs> well, and it's just, you know, large organizations with formal structures and, and uh, employees that are following strict rules are expensive. Yes, they are. Who's talking to us today, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1220, the geek out we did about next generation airliners. Right. We had, we had lots of fun with that show. Oh, right? yeah. Talking about. Again, we mentioned the 787, 787. also some of the new stuff that might be coming down the pipeline mm -hmm. someday. And uh, Jamie Nordmeyer said, uh, great show as always, gentlemen. Keep the geek outs coming. They are definitely some of my favorite shows. I wanted to add a thought about the flying wing type planes. We're talking about the blended wing body. Right. The massive amount of seating and so forth. Mm. Another downside to them from a commercial airline perspective, imagine what they'd have to do to turn one of these bad boys You'd have two situations that could arise. First would be the plane just makes a turn like a modern tube body aircraft does, mm. where it banks over to one side or the other to make the turn. Mm. This plane, the blended wing body, would see about 800 people, right, spread yeah. across the whole wing. Right. For the people towards the center of the plane, that wouldn't be so bad, no worse than any normal tube body plane. But <laughs> imagine being one of the poor people out on the tips yeah. How far would they raise or drop in a standard turn? 50 or 60 feet? Bring the extra barf bags. Well, you know, it depends on how fast they turn. Um, because, you know, planes descend and ascend pretty quickly. And you are actually moving a lot more in the air than you would be turning relative to where you are. So I would think that maybe the problem would just be being tilted rather than being flat for a long period well, of time. And sort of at the same time, you know, you're because you're inside this body, you can't necessarily tell which way you're facing either. Right. So what's one of the reasons you have to get an instrument rating as a pilot is because you can your ear can be fooled. Hmm. If they pull steadily up as they bank, they can keep one G pressing through the aircraft as they turn. Hmm. It'll be slightly higher on one side, slightly lower on the other side, hmm. but. It will still be, it won't be anybody free falling, right? Or none of that, that barf bag effect like you're going on a roller coaster. Right. So they may have to turn differently, but right. it's, it's absolutely manageable. You know, the original 707 in its first demonstration flight, the pilot who was a, a renowned cowboy, in fact, I think his nickname was Tex, <laughs> barrel rolled the aircraft. Wow. 
And then as he flew back to show it again, he's like, well, I better let him, let him know that this wasn't a mistake. So he barrel rolled it again. And barrel rolling is essentially flipping over on the horizontal axis. Right. So, he, but it's not a, a standard roll where you're literally just spinning around the Y axis. A proper barrel roll, he's actually maintaining one G of load. He's pressed into the seat the whole time he's rolling the plane over. So it's actually more of a corkscrew effect or oh, like yeah. you're going through a barrel. I gotcha. And the reason for that is that you do not want the airplane to actually be at a zero G state. That's hard on the fuel flow. It's hard on the hydraulics. It's better to keep it loaded the whole time. And you might fall out of your seat. <laughs> and you might fall out of your seat. <laughs> and so you got to think in terms of a blended wing body. And admittedly, you're not going to have people seated all the way out to the tips of the wings. Right. They're just going to be seated a bit wider. Right. They, you're going to want to keep them loaded in their seats, like pressed in their seats as you make turns right. for exactly that reason. Yeah. Okay. So there are solutions to that problem. Uh, and I commented back on it with, to Jamie at the time where I said, you know, maneuvering is a challenge. I went on to read more about, you know, doing G loaded turns and so forth. But the blend away body is odd enough an aircraft. But the most likely candidate to actually buy it is the military. Mm. And the strength of that aircraft is its carrying capacity is stunning. So for a cargo plane, like a replacement for the C-17, mm-hmm. this would be a great design because it's wide. So you can carry a lot of stuff. And it has a tremendous amount of lift for its size. So I suspect we'll see it as a cargo aircraft long before we see it as an airliner. Hmm. Very good. Jamie, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there, we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. So the last time I thought about supersonic jets or airliners, and we're talking about ones that carry people now, uh, was the Concorde. Well, because it's pretty much the only one, Yeah. right? Yeah. And as we had talked about on an earlier show – the uh, Concorde had a resurgence, and it unfortunately that flight was uh, September eleventh, two thousand one. Well, they had an accident in two thousand. Yeah. So, I mean, if you actually the the story of the Concorde is really interesting. It's amazing if you go back and read the whole history. And there's great video and and books and things about Concorde. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of people very passionate about that aircraft. Uh, just how little they knew about large-scale supersonic flight when they started building Concorde. I mean, it was the 1950s Mm. when they started designing that vehicle. They'd only broken, you know, the X-1 had broken the speed of sound 10 years earlier. Mm. Although, admittedly, aeronautical engineers knew about what they called the compression effect, right? And, you know, why why do they call the sound barrier a barrier? And the, the issue is, as you get closer to the speed of sound, different parts of your aircraft start to transition through the speed of sound. And the speed of sound is a relative thing. It depends on how high you're flying. It depends on how fast you're flying, how much humidity's in the air. Right. right what the atmospheric pressure is. Like, all of those different things matter. So, you know, supersonic flight, Mach 1, based on this guy named Mach, at sea level... When the air temperature is 68 degrees Fahrenheit, is 768 miles per hour. Okay. As you go higher and the air pressure goes down, the speed drops down. So even back in pre-World War II, they were aware that of these effects as you get close to the speed of sound. And in fact, 
the the P fifty one Mustang, the American plane that okay. was the super famous World War Two plane, right? Uh, its wing design, this laminar flow wing, was specifically to deal with not allowing compression effects to hit the wing early, hmm. and it made the plane faster. Huh. One of the reasons that the Mustang was one of the fastest fighter planes in World War II is that aeronautical engineers knew enough about the speed of sound. They still didn't call it mock effects yet. That they knew how to de- that they deliberately built a wing. This plane could fly around Mach 0.85. Hmm. They didn't know that at the time. They knew that at higher altitudes you could fly a bit faster than lower altitudes. Mm-hmm. And if you ex- but if you exceed that speed, and there's this lovely story I read of a pilot. Right at the end of World War II, in a P-51, dodging an ME-262, the, the Germans' first-generation jet fighter plane, by putting himself into a power dive and exceeding the speed limit of his aircraft. Wow. Right? And think, and pulling out of it successfully, because he, that's what most people believed is that you wouldn't be able to pull out. And then part of that is compression effects so that the shock wave of pushing the edge of the speed of sound freezes your controls or even reverses your control behavior. Yeah. That's not what happened to him. He was able to pull out. He's feeling very smug about himself, lands back at the at the airport, writes down in his report that he had this high-powered, high-speed dive. The mechanics go out and check his plane. He's ripped about a third of the rivets out of his aircraft. The wow. aircraft is a write-off. He's just lucky it didn't disintegrate in flight. Wow. That's how much you, know, you don't think about air having that much force. There's a song by Talking Heads. You probably know it. Air. And it's on the the album uh, Fear of Music, and the essence of it is air can hurt you too. Yes. Some people don't know anything about the air. Some people never had experience with air. (laughs) (laughs) And so the, you know, the essential technologies coming out of World War II as they started dealing with engines that were powerful enough, namely jet engines, to fly at supersonic speed were the whole swept wing idea. And the main reason you sweep your wings back is that you have a shock cone coming off the nose of your aircraft. Mm. And if that shock cone hits your wings, it will disrupt their behavior. So if you sweep the wings back, you keep them inside the shock cone. Okay. There's another little trick, and I'll I'll include a couple of links. Is that why the SR-71 looks the way it does? Absolutely. Totally. You know, that whole design, and you look at Concorde, look at SR-71, and pretty much look at any modern military fighter that's a supersonic fighter, Mm. you see that swept back, sleek look to it. Mm. And it was all about managing where the shockwaves land. Mm. Now, when you talk about the SR-71 and the XB-70, which is the only built two of, the prototype Mach 3 bomber, they go a step further. They start trying to capture those shockwaves to use them for acceleration, Mm. which that's a little out of our spectrum. Mm -hmm. But when you talk about core supersonic technology, swept wing, there's this thing called area rule. So as they learned more about what shock waves were and how they formed, they realized that as an aircraft changes in size, it makes more shock waves. Yeah. So look look at an aircraft by sort of looking down its length, slicing it. And so you see the size of the disc, right? You start at the, the tip of the pit-out tube is really small, but then gradually the nose gets bigger, mm-hmm. then it gets to the size of the cockpit and so forth. Every If you make a radical change in size anywhere along there mm-hmm. – you actually can create more shock waves. And so there's this idea, the concept they call the area rule. So the total area on the axis of the aircraft 
has to be consistent. And so I'll, I'll include a couple pictures and show links, but okay. you can see in certain aircraft, even in something as big as the A380, they will maintain area rule by shrinking down other parts of the aircraft. The hull will get a bit narrower as the wings get bigger. Huh. So it's really the total area that matters, not necessarily the, the shape. Absolutely. Right. The, huh. And, and shape's really interesting. As we get into, into low boom technologies, shapes get a little more interesting, but that area rule not, doesn't just apply to supersonic aircraft. I mean, the A380 is not a supersonic aircraft, but it follows area rule because it's more fuel efficient. Hmm. And the last big challenge behind supersonic technology is heat management. Sure. And then because I talked about the SR 71. And one of the things I learned about it is that it expands like 11 to 14 inches during flight because it just melts. <laughs> it gets so hot, right? And actually, the speed limit on the Concorde, speed limit on the SR-71 had more to do with melting the airplane than the limitation of the engines. Weird. In the SR-71, the fuel tank actually leaked at low temperatures. It was designed to seal up as it got hotter. Wow. Uh, read a great story on the Concorde. The Concorde expands over a foot when it's full temperature at altitude. And one of the expansion points is on a bulkhead in the cockpit. And so when they were retiring Concords, and they used a few of them up, right? Flew their hulls as much was safe, and they were going to retire them. Yeah. The crew would take their hat, right? They had a little cap that they would wear, mm -hmm. and they'd put it at temperature in the gap in the bulkhead so that when they landed, that would close. The hat was stuck in there. You couldn't get it out <laughs> unless you flew it again. But since the plane was very retired, it was stuck in there for good. It's a nice little ceremony. Yeah, it's, it's the problem. clever. Yeah. So – when it comes to, I mean, you got to talk about Concorde because Concorde was sort of the proof point. It was where most of the problems and laws came from. And, and one would argue they built it too soon. Mm. You know, they, they started designing it in the 1950s. It was a collaboration between the French and the British, which were each going to build their own. And they decided we might as well build it together. First flights in 1969, but it didn't actually go into service until 1976. But a magnificent feat of engineering. So, it's such a beautiful plane, too. Mm. I mean, isn't it interesting that some – I don't know if we if we were told that was beautiful so we believed it or if there's something about this kind of aerodynamics that are just inherently beautiful. And the thing that gives the, the Concorde its look – and again, if you study, you study it closely – is that area rule. So as the wings expand, the fuselage contracts. It's actually kind of tight inside. Hmm. And that particular wing that is that delta wing – now, it's not a straight delta. It's not just a, a big triangle. It's a thing called an, an Ogville planform. Okay. It's got two of these real graceful curves in it. And again, it's a, to tuck the wings in behind that shock cone. But the wing, if you look at it in total area, is just not that much for an airliner. Yeah. And the reason that it flew as well as it did is that this total surface, the, the width of the surface area, what they call the cord of the wing, was so deep that it would actually create a vortex on the backside of the wing. Hmm. And that vortex actually creates more lift for the wing. But in order to get that, you have to, you have to have fairly high angles of attack. Now, a normal airliner, when it takes off from the ground, it'll, it'll only tip up a few degrees, maybe eight or nine degrees. And then as it climbs out, gets to higher altitude, it might tip up as high as 15 degrees. You really don't want to tip more than that. Mm -hmm. But that's conventional wings. On the Delta wing, you need high angles of attack. So if you ever watch a video of the Concorde taking off, the nose jumps into the air up to about 18 degrees. Hmm. It's a very steep climb. Weird. And it actually be, is because that kind of wing needs that angle to generate enough lift. Okay. Hey, Rockheads. 
If you haven't already, check out Stackify Prefix, some next-level .NET profiling. Yowzer. Thanks, at Coder Cabana. We couldn't agree more, and neither could at Topimp or at Joe Stead or at Techfellow. Developers are swarming all over this powerful new profiler for .NET web apps, and not just because it's free. It profiles key app methods, SQL, caching, logs, errors, and more in real time. Usage is through the roof, which is totally fine. Prefix will never bog down performance. Quote, I have no idea how I got along without Prefix. Awesome tool. You said it at Boss Mojo Man. Visit bit.ly slash get prefix now for a live demo and an instant download. So next problem with that aircraft or next challenge with the aircraft is what engines do you use? Right. And again, the, this is the 60s. There were only so many engines. The engine selected was the Olympus 593. Now, these were actually nuclear bomber engines. Wow. These are, yeah. They, they had, so there's four of them. They're built to go supersonic. Serious. But, and they don't run at low speeds very well. They were built, they're super efficient at, at supersonic speeds, but they are not that good at low speeds. So, so they, do they have they good low speed engines and coupled with them or what? No, they would just run them. They would use two engines for taxiing and typically burn 2% of their fuel, full fuel load getting from the gate to the end of the runway. Wow. Jeez. It's, it's a very wasteful engine. And there were better engines they could have used later if they'd built enough to make it worthwhile to continue innovating on the aircraft, yeah. which they didn't. I mean, mm-hmm. in the end, only 20 Concords were built. Wow. Now, they and the engines had afterburners, something unprecedented in an airliner, right? And what's that? And so an afterburner is more or less a set of rings of fuel injectors at the back of the engine that you spray fuel into and set fire to. Okay, so it's sort of an extra boost. It is. And it, it is it's a heck of a kick, right? It's very powerful. And the exhaust ignites it? Yes. Okay. And you shoot fire out of the back of the <laughs> engine, right? Like, make no mistake. And they're norm- normally confined to military aircraft. They're very fuel inefficient, but they provide a big boost. I've seen they're that norm- with a trombone recently. I don't know if you saw that <laughs> YouTube video, but <laughs> some guy built a trombone that shot fire. Oh, it's awesome. So normally they would light the afterburners for takeoff because that's when they're heaviest. Most fuel on board, you know, they and they need to accelerate fast enough to get flying. Mm-hmm. So pretty much once they're flying, they shut the afterburner off. Then they climb to altitude and Concorde flew very high. Cruise altitude was about 55,000 feet, well above normal commercial airliners, subsonic right. airliners. And there was a few reasons for that. One is it reduces sonic boom. And the other is that it's, it, it, it reduces heating. The aircraft can fly extremely high, relatively speaking. And it also meant that Concorde, because it was by itself up there and there were so few of them, they could do some very efficient flight profiles. It may, the higher you fly typically in airliners, the more fuel efficient you get. But your weight sort of sets the limit for how high you can fly. But as you fly your aircraft, it burns fuel, so it gets lighter. So even back in the 1970s, Concorde would fly these climb cruise profiles where it would gradually gain altitude. It would start at around 53,000 feet, and as it burnt fuel on its way to its destination, it would climb as high as 60,000 feet Mm. before starting its descent. Mm -hmm. We're only just starting to get climb cruise profiles for commercial, regular commercial airliners now. Wow. 
If you if you are on a plane that has a, a continuous altitude monitor, notice that over time on your flights, you'll gain altitude. And it's it's pure fuel efficiency. That's what it's all about. Wow, wow, wow. So without the afterburners lit, Concorde could fly up to about Mach 9.95. It could actually fly supersonic without relighting its afterburners. Hmm. It could, wow. which is a technology called Super Cruise. And again, it speaks to how sophisticated Concorde actually was that it could go that fast. It had the, the the ramps and so forth. But they relit the afterburners to push through the transonic flight zone. Mm. So the hardest part of flying supersonic aircraft is transitioning from subsonic to supersonic. That's this the, is when the shock waves form. This is the transonic, transonic flight zone that you were just talking right. about. So 0.95 to 1.3 Mach, somewhere in there, hmm. is sort of the dangerous time. And so it is in your best interest to get through it quickly. Yeah. It's also a, a time of bad drag. It's really fuel inefficient. So amazingly, as inefficient as afterburners were, they figured out with Concorde, it was more fuel efficient to light the afterburners and race the aircraft from 0.95 Mach to 1.7 Mach than it was to just slowly accelerate up to speed. But at Mach 1.7, they turn the afterburners off again hmm. and then cruise steady at Mach 2. It seems to me that the higher you are, the less atmosphere you have to burn through, and so the easier it is on the engines and everything else. Is that true? Well, you've got a balancing act, right? You've got the heating of the atmosphere because you're moving so quickly, but you also need enough air to burn your fuel. Oh. Right? So is there a sweet spot? Well, and this is where they would fly. Every aircraft's a little different, right? They have these curves. Because as you get higher in the atmosphere and the air pressure starts to go down, you can flame out your engines. Right. Right? So you can get into these things that call coffin corners <laughs> on your flight graph, where you're so high, you barely have enough air to run your engines, and you're so fast that if your engines flame out, you'll lose control of your aircraft. Jeez. So you've got to be very careful. The the uh, the U-2, which I'm, I never really talked about on the show before, but it's a very unusual aircraft, has one of the worst coffin corners of it all because it can't fly supersonic. It's a subsonic aircraft, mm -hmm. but at its optimal altitude, it's right at the edge of flying supersonic. So if you dive, you'll go too fast, tear the wings off. But, you know... If, so if why you, do we want to do this again? <laughs> <laughs> Well, and this is the Can sad part. Can we just part slow about, down a little bit, people? I mean, why yeah. do we need to go so fast anyway? You, you are not wrong. So, <laughs> you know, when they specked out in the, in the late 1960s Concorde, they got a ton of orders. They immediately had a hundred orders for that aircraft. But in that time, mm. you know, that was a lot of airplanes. But between that happy time in the 1960s and the plane actually be ready to fly in the 1970s, we had the oil crisis. Yeah. Right? Right. And so they end up only building 20 of them, mm. um, of which only 14 ever go into service. Uh, and by the end, in 2003, there were only eight left in service, four on Air France and four in, in British Airways. The, but, the, you know, when you actually talk about how efficient is this aircraft, in 1976, the top of the, the most popular jet airliner is the 707. The 747 is just coming out, yeah. okay? And one of the ways you measure the efficiency of an aircraft is passenger miles per gallon of fuel. How many gallons of fuel per passenger per mile? 
So it's, yeah, how much, for a given gallon of fuel, how many people can I move a mile? Right. Or how many miles can I move one person? Right. Right? Makes sense. So the 707, which went into service at the end of the 1960s, and by this point is a mature aircraft, moved 33 passengers miles per gallon. So it could move 33 passengers a mile for a gallon of fuel, or one passenger 33 miles for a gallon of fuel, you know, play with the ratio. Sure. The new, the brand spanking new 747 at the time was 46 passenger miles per gallon. Hmm. So it was a more efficient airplane. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And by the way, as reference, the modern 787 9, mm-hmm. 102 passenger miles per gallon. Wow. That's one of the reasons that plane is so popular. It is dramatically more efficient. You, you cannot compare the 787. That is a super modern aircraft with all the same technology. So right. at the, in 1976, the 707 is a mature airplane at 33 passenger miles per gallon. The 747 is a brand new airplane yep. at 46 passenger miles per gallon and Concorde. 16 passenger miles. Ah, uh, okay. Burned a lot of fuel. It burns a lot of fuel. Like, why was Concorde tickets so expensive? Mm. They burned a lot of fuel. Mm. You know, plain and simple. The plane only held 100 people. It used a seating system that was unique to it. It caught the, the interior, and you can go tour these in museums these days. It's a business class-like seat, yeah. but smaller than a typical business class seat. It used a different mounting system. So the modern seats that got developed over time, they didn't work in Concorde. No entertainment system of any kind. No hmm. Wi-Fi, no no movies, nothing. The only There was a little screen at the very front of the plane that told you how fast you're flying. Wow. So the only comforts in the aircraft was everybody got champagne, everybody got meals. You know, that's that's how Concorde did things. Right, yeah. It was a luxury Because you were only airline. flying three hours, right? Yeah. You were going from, from London to New York in three and a half hours. It's crazy, huh? I think it, rather than do that, I think we need to revisit that whole vacuum tube uh, superconductivity, uh, you know, channel under the under the water. <laughs> rather than <laughs> it'd be safer and probably more pro- more uh, doable. Absolutely. What does Elon Musk call those things? The hyperloop. Hyperloop. Yeah. Well, Richard, you know what time it is now? Uh, must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time to turn on the afterburner of comedy. You ready? Ready. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> just that, just that, that extra punch. You don't really know what I'm laughing at. You just feel like laughing. Absolutely. All right. It's actually time to give away a D experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Ivan Stepanov. Nice. Congratulations, Ivan. Congratulations, Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for you, sir. Absolutely. Ivan just won the D Experience subscription from Developer Express. That is a big pile of awesome from our friends over there. And if you don't know what we just did, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, 
and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And Richard, I cannot wait to see what our winner this year chooses because it's a good year for technology. Oh, yeah. It's got to be a HoloLens, but it might be an Oculus Rift rig, too. Right? Or, or anything VR. I mean, it's going to be, so, I think there's going to be something VR in there no matter what. Yeah, VR, AR. I don't know which. Yeah, one VR or AR. Exactly. So we know that the Concorde and other supersonic aircraft, uh, has there been any? I don't know yet. You'll answer that. But we know that with supersonic, there's uh, fuel concerns. What about yes. environmental concerns? So there's a few, you know, one of the advantages of Concorde having so few aircraft is that none of these concerns could amount to much. But if we were really going to build a new supersonic airliner, we have to address these things. So because it does need to fly higher, there's concerns about it damaging the ozone more than regular airliners do. Yeah. Anything that burns fuel emits a certain number of nitrous oxides. Okay. And those nitrous oxides have impact on ozone. All right. Now, the altitude you fly at matters. There's lots of complexity here about the way things behave. And so there was, there has been a concern that the higher flying supersonic aircraft will uh, do more damage to the ozone. There's so few Concorde, so it doesn't matter all that much. Uh, at the same time, there's also clear evidence that you can reformulate fuels, ma mainly getting sulfur out of the fuel, to decrease that damage. So there is a question about how real that is, but I want to address it just because folks are, one of the reasons people resist supersonic aircraft is they think it's bad for the environment. There's also mm -hmm. concern about radiation. Mm -hmm. You know, you do take a lot more radiation on, an, on a flight at altitude because you're outside of a majority of the atmosphere, and the higher you go, the more atmosphere you're outside of. Right. Although that's more, you know, duration of exposure is equally as important. The fact that you fly less time actually means you get less dosage. So, uh, do the two wash each other out or is there actually more increase or, no, or a net increase in exposure? It's a net decrease. The less really? flying time has a bigger impact. Huh. That's interesting. You're not flying that much higher. Uh, interesting. But the big whammy from environmental concern perspective, and this is what really hit Concord in the 1970s, with the beginning of the environmental movement was noise pollution. Mm. Yeah, big sonic boom. Well, sonic boom is one element of it. There's also complaint the aircraft itself is noisy. Now, admittedly, the aircraft took off using afterburners, and afterburners are notoriously noisy. Mm -hmm. There was an upgrade plan they called a Concorde B, just the same way that they built an uh, updated version of any other airliner. Mm-hmm. You know, the 747 started out as the 100 model and the 200 model and the 400 model and now Model 8 and so forth. The upgrade to Concorde, which never got built, would have eliminated the afterburner entirely by just making a more powerful engine wow. that was more fuel efficient. They just didn't build it because they didn't make enough aircraft. So there's no reason to do it. So the, the is this aircraft noisy argument for the time wasn't really true. Once you get past the afterburner, we would have gotten rid of that. And it's also important to realize that Concord was the focal point of the whole idea of noise abatement. No one had talked about it really before that. And since that time, airliners have been required to be progressively quieter. So it's all about the sonic booms? Yep, pretty much. This is the linchpin. And for better or worse, I've gone and read the FAA regulations and the UK regulations pretty much read the same way. Hmm. 
with the outcry in the 1970s against Concord, and it, it became the focal point around this, and they were really lashing out about a bunch of things. Concord is not to blame for all of this. Uh, they didn't know how to regulate sonic booms. Mm-hmm. So what the FAA did and what the actual existing regulation is to, to this day is no civilian aircraft can exceed the speed of sound over the U.S. Wow. Period. Wow. So it doesn't matter about how loud your boom is or anything like that. You can't exceed the speed of sound, which is a terrible way to write the law. Yeah, sure. I mean, Although, it doesn't. It, it assumes that just because you're exceeding the speed of sound it means you're going to have sonic boom, which exactly. I suppose is a law of physics. But there are ways to dampen it. Maybe there is. Funny you should mention. That. Well, funny I should. And just to say something nice about the FAA. Since 2003, which oddly enough is when Concord ended, right, and they finally stopped flying Concord, every other year or so, the FAA has open hearings about modifying that regulation. Huh. So they're routine. I've read a bunch of the, the minutes and so forth. So various technology groups and so forth are bringing up that we can shape the boom. They're so on. They're saying, fine, give us a set of measurements that make sense and we'll modify the law. So they are paying attention to it. And has anything worked? Well, no regulations have been changed yet, but the science behind sonic booms is much better known today than before. Mm. So let's talk about what a sonic boom is. Yeah. So this is a compression wave. It's actually a double boom. The compression wave starts at the front of the aircraft when the air can't get out of the way, right? The aircraft's moving so fast Mm -hmm. and then relaxes back to its normal state at the end of the aircraft. Okay. Every sonic boom is actually a double boom. The front end, and if you look at this on an oscilloscope measuring the sound waves, it's what they call an end wave. Sharp peak at the front drops rapidly down, sharp peak opposite direction at the end, Mm. shaped like an N. Oh, I get it. Yeah. Okay. Sure. So a big positive shock and then a big negative shock. Negative shock, exactly. And it, the, the frequency of that shock wave tends to be between just barely over a hertz up to maybe 300. Very low. And anywhere between 100 and 500 milliseconds. Wow. Okay. Very low, low frequency, big, big low end rumble. Big thud. And right? it's just, is that what lightning is? You know, the thunder that you yes. hear at lightning? That's a sonic boom, right? Yeah, which is one of the reasons I think it upsets people as much as it does, is that hardwired in our lizard brains is that thunder and lightning are dangerous. That damn amygdala just gets in the way so many times. gets you every time. But a few things interesting that they've studied sonic booms. Much above Mach 1.3, sonic booms don't change. Okay. So you can rip by at Mach 5, it's the same kind of boom. It's just getting through that transitional window, huh? Right. Well, once you're up there, you're going to make a boom. So how do we make the boom less obnoxious? Mm. The size of the vehicle matters a lot. So, I mean, every sonic boom is actually a double bang. But most aircraft that can fly above the speed of sound are fighter planes. And they're so small, the boom is one contiguous noise. Uh But if you ever watch a video of the space shuttle landing, Mm. the shuttle's big enough that you hear this, ba-bam. They're far enough apart. And you actually do hear ba-boom. Yeah. It's a double hit. Concord also had that double hit, that ba-bam. Hmm. There's very few recordings of it because almost immediately nobody was, they weren't allowed to fly over land, so nobody got a recording of it. Also, re- microphones tend to only pick up down to like 20 hertz. So it's hard to hear. It, you know, there's a high, the, it gets up to a few hundred hertz. So, okay. you know, it's, 
It's there. All right. It is there then. And in the end, what this is, is what they call overpressure, right? It's a variation in air pressure. And a variation in air pressure is actually pretty small. It's just that it happens very rapidly. So normal atmosphere pressure at sea level is 14.7 PSI, right? Mm-hmm. If an SR-71 ripped over your head at Mach 3 at 80,000 feet, mm. the overpressure is under one pound. What does that mean? So the actual amount of air flexing, that, that, that pressure change, is less than a pound. It's not much more than you'd get going up in an elevator. Huh. The, the difference is it happens at 100 milliseconds, mm. so it goes thud. Oh, I see. Right? The space shuttle, and again, this is one of the few sonic booms you can hear routinely if you listen to the video of the space shuttle landing. Mm. Typically, when you hear that, it's when it's flying overhead on its final approach turn at about 60,000 feet, moving at about Mach 1.5. Mm. And that is a one and a, and a quarter pound overpressure. Okay. So here's the problem with Concorde. Because Concorde's 300 feet long, at Mach 2 at 52,000 feet, so it's a typical profile after they've accelerated up to full, full speed, but still with a heavy fuel load, it's almost a two-pound overpressure. Oh, wow. Big so it's boom. it's quite a powerful overpressure. Big boom. It's a, it's a big, strong boom. It's also not – it doesn't just happen once. You don't make a boom as you go through the speed of sound. You're dragging that boom behind you. So it's a big, long, contiguous trail of boom. Right, and roughly for every thousand feet of altitude, the boom wave is about a mile wide. Wow. So, at at 53,000 feet, you have a 50-mile wide cone being dragged behind you, booming its way along. And that's a wave, so it goes in all directions, including down to the ground. That's right. Yeah. Right? And now, up until this point, aircraft that flew above the speed of sound... And you understand that to make a supersonic aircraft is actually build two planes in one, one that functions subsonically and one that functions supersonically mm. because the aerodynamics are so different. And that's what makes the plane expensive, right? You're really running two different systems in one aircraft and being able to tolerate the heat exposure, the shock cones, the, the deceleration of air into the engines. Like there's a lot of complexity added. And so, Everything to minimize the number of shock cones so that you don't have collisions with the physical aircraft, stuff that would rip parts of the plane off, is what they focused on. But DARPA, mm-hmm. remember DARPA? Sure, yeah. They brought, we love DARPA. They brought us the internets. <laughs> that brought you the internet, automated driving, automated all those driving, fun things. Yeah. Yeah. They had a project back in 2000 called the Quiet Supersonic Platform. Hmm. And their initial goal, remember, DARPA goes for impossible goals, right. was can we get sonic booms down to 0.3 pounds of overpressure? And unlike corporations, they give the technology away to everybody. Pretty much. I mean, they, a lot of the technology tends to be developed. It's an American Defense Department group. Yeah. The technology is developed by American companies. They certainly talk about it, but the, and it ends up being American companies that own the tech. Yeah, yeah. So, back in 2003... There was a project called the Shaped Sonic Boom Demonstration. Okay. So, there was a group of scientists that thought, that believed, they had a hypothesis of how the N-wave was shaped. And so, their goal was to be able to manipulate the shape of that wave by changing the shape of the aircraft. They had a set of math around how they thought it would work, and so then they modeled it on an actual airplane. The plane in question was an F-5E. This is a plane known as the Freedom Fighter. Mm -hmm. It's a very inexpensive, for-export 
fighter jet that is about uh, capable of flying about 1.4 Mach. Okay. They put a different – so the normal F5E as is – uh, and the testing process for this, like reading the papers, is very lengthy. And I'll include a link to the free book that's the study of this whole thing if you want to read it. Okay. It's 400 pages. Cool. It's about a 1.2 pound overpressure. Okay. Okay, which is enough. That's that's typical fighter jet overpressure. It's it's lot, That's a nasty boom, right? You don't want that going on. Okay. They changed the nose of the aircraft. Right? Instead of being sharp and pointy like most supersonic aircraft, it's sort of wide and flat and looks vaguely like a pelican bill. It's got a bit of a of a gullet hanging underneath hmm. it as well. Okay. But they reduced the boom by 33%. Wow. I mean, not a small amount. And are they doing this with computer models or with good old-fashioned yes. slide rules? Well, remember, this is 2003, 2004, right? Te- I mean, technology was pretty good then. They were starting to be able to model they, the funny thing is, a couple of more law iterations later, it's now 2006, mm. they take what they've learned from the SSBD, and they create a technology called Quiet Spike. Hmm. And Quiet Spike is a 24-foot-long spike that they mounted on the nose of an F-15, and it actually extends itself. You can, you can make it expand. And the whole point here is that what makes the N-wave harsh is that sharp shockwave at the front. Yeah. So what if we eased into the shockwave? What if we did it gradually? So they mounted this on an F-15. Now, a normal F-15's overpressure is about 1.5 pounds. Okay. Loud. It's a relatively big fighter. Mm. It's loud. Mm. So this this is not not changing the aerodynamics of the aircraft a lot. I mean, the, the F-5 modification was a fairly substantial aerodynamic modification. Okay. This is a spike that sticks out the nose of the F-15, and it extends as you accelerate into the supersonic regime. Okay. They go from 1.5 to 0.5. Wow. At that point, the shock wave is low enough that at altitude, it's barely audible. That is it's amazing. It's sort of a rumble. Amazing. It worked. Now, so, did it just work in the wind tunnel or did they actually build something? These are airplanes flying over, flying in the air. Wow. Right? These are real, actual things. And if you go back and look in news stories and things around supersonic flight and stuff, that's when there was all this buzz. In 2005 to 2008, there was lots of Lockheed Martin, all these different companies talking about building new supersonic aircraft. And it was a lot of it was based on these DARPA science that showed they could mess with the shockwave in a very meaningful way. Well, now I have a question. If sure. this is DARPA, it's all in the U.S., and there's a law that prohibits supersonic flight in the U.S., how did they test it? Well, those are all military aircraft. But you it's said there was a civilian aircraft that can't speak to break the speed of sound. I thought you said there was no aircraft, period. No, it was yeah. only civilian? Civilian. Okay. That's right. The military is allowed to break the speed military of sound. The military can do what the heck it wants, really. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, they shouldn't. And there's a whole story in the 1960s in Oklahoma where they were doing eight super, supersonic booms a day over o- Oklahoma. Like, it's mm. it's crazy, mm. you know, the stuff that they did in experimenting with all this. And now there are earthquakes in Oklahoma. Coincidence? Well, that's, no, I'm kidding. Pretty sure that's fracking. I'm, I'm totally kidding. Yeah. Um, the latest research I found still going on at NASA is a thing called faint. Okay. For the far field investigation of no boom thresholds, <laughs> which is really contorting for an acronym, my yeah, friends. Really like, good is. lord. Yeah. So, what they're actually doing now is getting into the details of the way that supersonic waves form. Okay. And there's these edges of the wave called the evanescence waves mm-hmm. that they're starting to understand enough that they think they can modify the flow of the aircraft so that it, it basically would be inaud- inaudible. Wow. 
So they, that re, the research started in 2000 by DARPA. This is one of these projects that it, every so often it pops up. They're doing something cool. They have never stopped working on this problem, and they're getting better and better and better at it. Wow. Which leads us to today, well, and in the past few years, about is it time to build a new supersonic airline? Yeah, is it time? So Lockheed Martin has an aircraft design, and, they, and this was just announced like March of 2016 called the Quiet Supersonic Technology, or Quest. Again, more tortured. Yeah. They've, NASA, and they, of course, they're announcing, NASA has funded us. Now, NASA has funded them to the tune of $20 million. Okay. That won't even produce a set of plans for an aircraft. It's, it's not enough money. But the goal is actually to have an X-plane, you know, like the X-1, specifically doing u- using all these low-boom low technologies by 2019. Okay. So they want to fly in 2020, just an experimental aircraft. But other companies, going back to the original announcements in 2005 and 2008, have been working to try and fund business class jets. Hmm. So one of them is a company called Spike Aerospace. Mm-hmm. Their aircraft's called the S-512. What a lovely name. Yeah. Supposed to, but it's a biz jet. So Mach 1.6 carrying 18 passengers. Aircraft costs about $100 million, which is the top end of expensive biz jets. Biz jet. Wasn't yeah. that a Microsoft product at one point? Biz jet. <laughs> nice. But you know, top executives, and we know a few at Microsoft even, yeah. have sometimes used private jets to save time. Sure. And so they, they are the logical market for a faster airplane because they care about time in the first place right. and, and they tend to be less price sensitive. Yeah. And so that probably has the best chance of being built, even though they've been talking about it since 2008, always saying they're going to fly in 2019 and they still haven't bent any metal. Uh. So I'm always frustrated by these things, right? Is that there's, there's lots of announcements made, but just not a lot going on. Yeah. I mean, Lockmart, and I get frustrated with Lockmart. You know, these are the guys who are the Skunk Works. They've built the SR seventy one. Now they the use nuclear fish, fusion reactor. Yeah. yeah, they had their fusion reactor. They had a plane they called the SR seventy two, but they're just all paper, right? They're not real, and that you know is very annoying to me as somebody who is you know deeply fond of Skunk Works. Mm. Uh, a recent announcement, and one of the reasons I decided to do this show now, this is the past few months, was a company called Boom Technology. And I like these guys because they're saucy. It's, a, it's really, they're out of Denver. It's a group of aeronautical engineers. Like the, the lineup is impeccable. And they're saying, hey, you know what? It's time to build a 40 seat, you know, aircraft, but still capable of flying, you know, New York, London, just for less money. We're not going to worry about the low boom stuff. We'll just fly over water at Mach 2.2. Wow. They haven't bent any metal either, but they do have an order from Virgin Airlines. Richard Branson has optioned 10 aircraft That's from That's cool because, you know, he he's willing to take chances. He likes technology. Well, you technology. know, and the funny thing is when I saw him do that, I dug into it. Do you know he tried to buy all the Concords in 2003? Really? Really? Yeah. Wow. He tried to buy the Concords for Virgin. The, uh, they just couldn't come to a price. You know what his original offer was to the to the British government? No idea. One pound. Ah, you mean well, buy them physically? Like I will take all the. Yeah, I want to off. buy your Concords. I'm. You don't want to fly them anymore. I want to keep flying them. Ah, so I will buy them from you for a pound. Okay, because the British government sold them to British Airways essentially for a pound mm, as well. I see. Uh, he eventually raised his price. I think he got up to about five million pounds oh. before it, it fell apart. The real issue here was not 
that the airframes are worn out or anything. Mm-hmm. It's that Airbus, mm-hmm. which was responsible for the maintenance of the airframe, mm-hmm. just wasn't willing to do the maintenance anymore. It was too expensive. It took up too much space. Wow. And so they weren't, you know, that was the real thing that shut down Concorde. It didn't make enough money, but it's just like it got really expensive to keep those airplanes flying, and, and Airbus didn't want to spend it anymore. Okay. Good enough. So that's that's really what it came down to. So in some ways, boom technology, if they could get funded, and that's a pretty big if, mm. these are billion-dollar fundings, wants to build a 40-seat Super Concorde. Mm. They believe they can get the price down to half of what Concorde was, even, maybe even a quarter. Wow. Which is just using more modern technology. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the speed limit of Concorde at Mach 2 was set by the point at which the aluminum skin starts to melt. Yep. Right? Yep. They just, if they'd used different materials, which is a lot more material available, they could sure. have gone faster. Sure. So there, there are definitely options there for going faster. Now, if you go in, start digging around here, you will find a dozen other companies saying they're going to build supersonic aircraft. Is it because the materials and the science, all of these things are sort of converging? Well, I, th- and if, I think that's part of it. I think there's a, a sort of general interest level and, you know, supersonic jets are sexy. Right. So is it any is it a very specific time that it's better now? I'm not so convinced. Hmm. The low boom technology is interesting, right? Yeah. To actually get the law changed is interesting. Hmm. The fact that Lockmart's doing the research means it's going to go slowly, but they really do know what they're doing in this area. Yeah. So that's potentially useful. Cool. But I'm left with the same old problem. Do you care whether it takes eight hours to fly New York to London or three and a half hours to New York to London? Yeah. If you are entertained. Now, and that gets to the root of the problem. And I, I learned about this on Freakonomics, which you probably did yep. too, is that they could spend more money on giving everybody a bottle of Dom Perignon and extremely fast Wi-Fi and, and all of the other things. And you can do your work. You have to exist during the day somewhere. Right. If you're going to exist in your hotel room doing work or on a plane doing work, does it really matter? And my example of this is I'm flying from London to Vancouver. Yeah. Right? That's a flight I do several times a year. Mm-hmm. I'm a United member, so I get free upgrades if I fly United, which means I have to fly through the U.S. The, the most direct route would be London, Newark, Vancouver. Okay. Or London, Chicago, Vancouver. Yeah. But I fly... London, Houston, Vancouver. And why is that? Why would I do that? That's an extra four hours of flying. Because the plane that you fly on is much more comfortable. 787-9, man. Yeah. Because United flies a 787 from London to Houston every day. Wow. And then I get a... Uh, and then I get an A320 from Houston to Vancouver. And on both flights, I'm in business class with Wi-Fi, good food, a comfortable seat, lots of movies, and power. I don't care. I'm more comfortable. And that's an inexpensive solution. I'm just not convinced that the average traveler is going to pay the premium for supersonic flight other than the novelty, which means they'll pay once. Yeah, there has to be an urgent reason for you to get there as soon as possible. And so that sort of makes the BizJet story make more sense, except that you're never going to sell that many BizJets, maybe a hundred on the outside. So can you afford the, the, you can make the aircraft make money, but can you absorb the research cost? Mm. 
And that's the real stumbling block. You're going to spend a billion dollars in research to mature the design enough to make the aircraft. Are you ever going to be able to pay that off beyond the cost of the aircraft? Right. And so the economics on this are very tight because the capabilities not good enough. And I'd end with this one last thing, which might end up being another show separately. So before we wrap this up, I got a little story for you. Uh, we recently, you and I, were in San Francisco at a yep. uh, Microsoft conference. And we I were. flew there direct from Boston on JetBlue with nice. a new service they call Mint. And JetBlue has never had first class. They've never had like a, a different class of seat. They have this even more space section, which is at the front of the plane where you get more leg room and all that stuff. But that's about it. Um, this was totally different. This was uh, seats that recline all the way and at least a 19 inch LCD screen. It might have even been 20, 21 inches. It was huge. And uh, a power outlet, not just USB, but actual AC power. So nice. those people who have CPAPs could, you know, use that. Um, and a remote for the chair. So the chair had a massager in it. Very civilized. Very civilized indeed. And, uh, of course, all of the perks of a first-class ride. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. Now, I asked mm -hmm. them, well, where do you fly? They fly direct from Boston to San Francisco. They fly uh, now, I think it's starting in October, maybe this October, maybe last. I can't remember which it was. They're doing Los Angeles, but Barbados, Boston right. to Barbados is the other flight that they have this on. So long story short, I highly recommend JetBlue Mint if you're traveling to any of those places. And it's funny you mentioned Barbados because that was one of the places Concord flew. Huh. You know, everybody knows about New York, London, and there was also Paris, New York. But the very last flight of a BA Concorde was uh, London Barbados. And you know, uh, the, what just occurs to me is why people want to go to Barbados. That's where the tax shelter is. Yep. You're totally right. Yeah. And, that, and that's what ultimately is important. So, uh, I don't know, man. I don't know if this, any of this stuff's going to come true because it's not compelling. But mm -hmm. the one piece of research, and maybe this will be another show, is how fast would you need to go where you wouldn't care about comfort? Huh, that's an right. interesting question. You know, conventional airliner, eight hours, New York, London. Uh, Mach 2, we can do it in three and a half hours. What if I can get it down to like 45 minutes? Yeah. So you didn't need anything. Like, what if I could get it? You know, there's sort of thresholds here about, I don't want to go several days because then I need, I need places for people to wash up. Yeah. I've, I I wanted so that most people don't need to wash up. I can feed them. Maybe they need a bathroom. That's about it. But what if I can get it down to fast enough? You don't even need a bathroom. Mm. Wow! You never get out of the seat. Wow! Is that actually interesting? And that's when you start talking about hypersonic aircraft, Mach seven, Mach eight. Boom, boom, you're there. You know, would you pay a premium for that? You know, Richard, I think we have to end this show with a song from Donald Fagan from his magnificent masterpiece album, The Nightfly, and it's called IGY, International Geophysical Year, and it's sort of a fantasy of what the future looked like from the 50s point of view. Nice. And it, it includes a line, 90 minutes from New York to Paris by 76 will be A-OK. -okay. <laughs> thanks for listening everybody and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks
Game of chance in the sky. 